We this morning are in part nine of our Being Jesus series, and the title of this morning's message is Rounding Up the Crew. We're going to look at the stories of, of Jesus beginning to call his disciples, the men that would walk with him most closely during his earthly ministry. And what we're going to see this morning, and this is important, that this, these stories are not just about some guys who lived 2,000 years ago, who we never met, and who we don't care about. Uh, in fact, this is a story at its core about what Jesus is like. These stories tell us what Jesus is like and about the sorts of people he calls to participate in the kingdom of God, to participate in the work he's doing in the world. And the amazing thing that we're going to see as we learn about these men and as we read these stories is we're going to see a lot of ourselves in them. All right, we're going to see that they were imperfect just like we are. These are not spiritual superheroes. If anything, these guys are more like the bad news bears that are just like, Okay, Jesus, we'll come with you. We don't got a whole, else, a whole lot else going on. And Jesus is like, yeah, all right, we're going to make this work. Uh, but here's the special thing about them. They believed something powerful, and it was this. They believed that the call of Jesus was for them. And what I want us to see this morning is that the call of Jesus, the call to follow him, the call to be a part of the work he's doing in the world is for us specifically, it's for you. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, still calls people today, and he calls each and every one of us. And the fill in, fill in the blank on the sheet, on the sheet in front of you is this. When Jesus calls, you must respond. When Jesus calls, you must respond. And before we get into John chapter 1, I want to look briefly at a text from Luke chapter 4 that just sort of sets the scene for what's going on in Jesus's ministry. You don't need to turn there. We'll have the text on the screen. But what's happened is Jesus has now been baptized. We looked at that story a couple of weeks ago. And now he's gone out into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And now he's returned to civilization. He's begun to do ministry. He hasn't performed any miracles or any healings or anything like that. But here's what's happened. He has become extraordinarily popular and he has gathered a tremendous following already i mean he he can't go out to dinner anywhere without someone asking for his autograph or if he ever gets pulled over the cop just wants to take a picture with him and then he lets him go i mean he's jesus it's not like he was speeding anyway but you get the idea uh the, the point is simply this he was incredibly popular and this is what luke said chapter 4 verse 42 and when it was day he departed and went into a desolate place And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. See, Luke tells us earlier that when Jesus was 12... He, he, he went into the temple and he starts discussing religious matters with the spiritual authorities of the day. And people are just like, whoa, man, who is this guy? This guy, this kid is unbelievable. So you can imagine if 12-year-old Jesus was impressive, 30-year-old Jesus was just blowing people's minds, right? Like he was talking about the things of God with a depth and perspective that they had never seen before. And what this text tells us is that Jesus, at his core, was a preacher. He was a preacher with a message. Did he heal people? Absolutely. Did he perform miracles and signs? Absolutely. We're going to close our time together with looking at the first sign that he performed. But at his core, he was a preacher. 
And his message was that the kingdom of God was at hand, that God was present, that he was doing a new thing, and that people were invited to be a part of it. And we're going to see again some stories of people that begun to catch that vision and join him. So let's go over to John chapter 1, and we're going to see an encounter between Jesus and John the Baptist and the calling of some of his first disciples. We're going to start reading in verse 29. Here we go, John 1 verse 29. The next day, now pause right there, sorry. When John says the next day, I need you to understand something. It's like when I'm watching a sporting event and my wife asks me, how much longer till it's over? And I say, a minute, right? Or if we're getting ready to leave the house and I ask her, when are you going to be ready? And she says, a minute. It's like, don't start the stopwatch, all right? Like we're not literally meaning a minute. We just mean later, okay? That's what John means when he says the next day. The next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's John saying here? He's saying a couple things. He's calling Jesus the Lamb of God. And anybody listening to John at that time would immediately associate the idea of a lamb with sacrifice. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the first five books of the Old Testament, lambs are, are talked about as sacrifices for sin more than 80 times. John is saying, Jesus is the sacrifice for sin before God. He is the ultimate sacrifice. There's a reason why when we come together to worship Jesus today, we don't sacrifice a lamb. First of all, that would violate all sorts of health code issues. But more importantly, we don't have to offer a sacrifice for sin because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for us. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then John says, he takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the one who takes away sin. Denying our sin does not take away sin. Feeling guilty over our sin does not take away sin. Good religious behavior does not take away sin. Only Jesus can take away my sin and yours. That's the whole point of the cross, that when Jesus, who was without sin, went to the cross, he was doing so in our place for our sin, so because of his righteousness, we can be accepted before God and walk in freedom. 1 John 1, 7 says plainly that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And this is important because here's what can happen is you and I can walk around in our lives and we can say things like this. You know, I I know that God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. And what are we saying when we say that? We're saying, you know what? The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was not enough to pay for my sin. And I want you to know that's not true, friends. The sacrifice of Jesus indeed was enough. Let's keep reading. This is he of whom I said, John saying, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, this is the guy I've been telling you about. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descended from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
In other words, John the Baptist says, God told me that you're going to see someone and the Holy Spirit is going to come down and is going to descend and is going to stay on them. And when you see that happen, that's my son. That's the son of God. And that is indeed exactly what happened at Jesus' baptism. So, so John says, this is the guy. And John shows us something powerful, both in this text and in the text we'll look at in just a second. And that's this, that his ministry was all about Jesus. I mean, John himself was extraordinarily popular as well. I mean, he was huge. He was, he was all over the talk show circuit. Everybody wanted to listen to John the Baptist. He had tons of disciples, tons of followers. But when Jesus showed up, he said, you know what? My time is done. It's not about me. Don't follow me anymore. Follow him. A few chapters later in John, he would utter those famous words, he must increase and I must decrease. And I love that he says that my joy may be complete. Right? It's all about just exalting Jesus. And the question, the powerful question and challenge that that gives to all of us is just simply this. What's the point of your life and mine? What's the point of your job? What's the point of your parenting? What's the point of your friendship? What's the point? Maybe you serve in ministry. What's the point of your ministry? Is it simply to impress people with yourself? Or is there a greater purpose to it? I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be well-regarded or to be respected for, for work that is well done. But if that's the primary purpose of your life and mine, man, we're missing something. And we're hurting those around us. Because the truth is, you can't save anybody. And I can't save anybody. But we know the one who can. And we can point people to him. And that's what John the Baptist was all about. He said, you know what? Forget about me. My whole job here is to point people to Jesus. He's the one who can forgive sin. He's the one who can free you from your past. He's the one who gives you a new identity. Oh, that you and I would be just more like John the Baptist, unconcerned with our own glory, but desiring only to use whatever influence we might have to point people to Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 35. The next day, remember, later... Again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? Now, this is a loaded question if there ever was one. See, in Jesus' time, there were all sorts of, of, of groups, particularly religious groups, that would have loved to come to Jesus with an agenda. There were the Pharisees who were obsessed with the law and nitpicking the law, and they would have loved to distract Jesus and tie him up with debates about the law that had little application to real life. You had the Sadducees who absolutely would love to ride the coattails of a popular teacher like Jesus so that they may gain, might gain more political and social influence. You had the zealots who were political extremists who would love for a popular teacher like Jesus to endorse their cause as they thought, as they sought to overthrow Rome militarily. In other words, all sorts of people coming to Jesus with an agenda. And Jesus looks at these men and says, what are you seeking? Are you like them? Or are you just a broken sinner in need of God's grace who wants to be a part of the kingdom of God? Because I can give you that. And that's a powerful question for each of us to consider. If Jesus were to ask us, what are you seeking? How would we respond? What are you, what are you seeking from me? 
What would we say? I mean, are we coming to him with an agenda or are we coming to him for him? Because some of us, we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you to do X, Y, and Z for me. Right? Or we say, Jesus, I'm going to behave myself so that you'll reward me with whatever it is I really want. Because what I really want is not you. Right? Or Jesus, I'm going to attach your name to my cause or my agenda. Because come on, we all know that you're on my side. And the people that disagree with me or think differently, they're all just a bunch of sweaty heathens that, that hate you. So we know that you're with me. Right? Or we say, Jesus, because I've done this for you, now you need to do this for me. You owe me. And then how crazy is that? Do we act like we can put God in our debt? We act like somehow God owes us something. And I believe that that is absolutely the key to a miserable life, by the way. If you came this morning wondering, what is the key to a miserable life? I've got it for you. You might want to write this down. The key to a miserable life is believing that God owes you. Because he doesn't. And we can come to God and say, God, you owe me a healing. God, you owe me a better marriage. God, you owe me better behaved kids. You owe me that promotion. You owe me, you owe me, you owe me. And the truth of the matter is this. God owes us nothing and has given us everything. God owes us nothing and has given us everything. And the truth is, real joy is found in coming to God for exactly what he promises, and that is himself. I mean, so many of us get mad at God because he does not give us what he never promises in the first place. What he promises us is himself. If you come to me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And you know what? He has wired you and me to be entirely content and satisfied in him and him alone. So it is tremendous grace of God that he would say, come to me for me. And it's worth noting, getting back to the story, that Jesus never asked questions because he was lacking information, right? Like he never had to say, man, I wonder what that person's thinking. He's God, okay? Like he knows. But by asking them this question, it's an opportunity for them to consider, man, what what am I here for? What am I seeking? And I love their response. They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? In other words, we want to be with you. We're not looking for just some quick fix here. We want to know you. We want to spend time with you. We want to understand how we can follow you. And that's a request Jesus is glad to accommodate. Verse 39. And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. It's probably about four o'clock. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought them to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The word literally means rock. And here's what we can learn about Peter and Andrew, the first disciples we meet. First, there's Andrew. And he's so excited about Jesus that the first thing he does, he goes and he finds his brother. He says, You've got to come see this guy. And throughout the scriptures, we don't really hear a whole lot about Andrew. In fact, he's only mentioned three times. But you know what he's doing each of those three times? He's bringing people to Jesus. Like, that's a pretty good thing to get caught doing, right? But throughout the scriptures, we see that Andrew was just a behind-the-scenes guy. He wasn't the guy with the big personality. He wasn't the guy that attracted a lot of attention. He just loved Jesus and was kind of a quieter guy and just wanted to serve him and be with him. And I just, man, if, 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 if you... 
are thinking about, man, how could God use me? And you wonder, man, I just don't know that God could, could use me or if there's really a place for me. Because I, I don't have the big personality. I get real nervous talking to strangers or I, I break out in hives if there's a microphone on my face or you know, anything like that. I just, I just don't know. I mean, teaching other people I could never do. And if, if that's you, man, Andrew is your guy. Because he's just a simple, quiet guy that loved Jesus and wanted to serve him. And Jesus calls people exactly like Peter, on the other hand, gets quite a bit more attention in the scriptures. If you've been in church world for any length of time, you've heard of Simon Peter. He ends up becoming one of Jesus' closest companions. And I I love the first interaction he has with Jesus. He he comes to him and he says, you know, hi, I'm Simon. And Jesus just looks at him and he says, Simon, huh? Nah, where do you go with Peter? You're going to be Peter from now on. And he just changes his name right on the spot to this name that means rock. And listen, for most of us today, maybe our names don't mean that much. I mean, my name's Brian, I like my name, but I have no idea what it means. And frankly, I don't care. But in, in Hebrew Jewish culture, names meant a ton. Names were your identity. Names said something about you. And in the Old Testament, whenever God changes someone's name, it's symbolizing there's a new relationship now between me and you. In the book of Genesis, Abram becomes Abraham and and Jacob becomes Israel. It's as if Jesus looks at Peter, looks at Simon and says, you know what? You need a fresh start. You need a new identity. I'm changing your name. Because see, Jesus calls people who need a fresh start. Jesus is saying to Peter, man, I see what is good in you. And you're a rock. You're going to do some great things with your life. I'm giving you a new identity. And some of us need to see that when we come to Jesus, he does not look at us with condemnation for our past, but rather he looks at us with hopefulness for our future. He sees what he can, what we can become. He gives us a new name. And some of us, man, we've given ourselves terrible names and we carry them around with us. And I just want to tell you, maybe you failed, but your name is not failure. Maybe you're divorced, but your name is not divorcee. Maybe you've gone bankrupt, but your name is not broke. Maybe you've, you've made mistakes, but that is not your identity. That Jesus gives you a new name. He sees what is good in you and calls it out of you. I love the story about Michelangelo, the artist, not the Ninja Turtle, who one day was seen, was seen, I just want to make sure we're clear on that, uh, was seen chipping away at this shapeless, piece of rock and someone came and asked him like michelangelo what are you doing and he said this i'm releasing the angel imprisoned in this marble he looked at this shapeless rock and he saw the beautiful sculpture inside jesus does the same thing with us and a few chapters later jesus is going to encounter a tax collector named matthew I mean, what could be worse than a tax collector? I mean, I don't know of any society that really esteems tax collectors, all right? Like, who are your heroes? The tax collectors! I just don't know that there's a society like that. But in this culture, tax collectors were especially hated. Especially for a Jewish kid to become a Roman tax collector. What could be worse than that? Everybody would have given up on him. His family likely would have disowned him. Nobody would have wanted to even admit that they knew the guy. And yet Jesus encounters him in Matthew chapter 9. And what does he say? Matthew's sitting in the tax booth. So there's no confusing who he is, what he does for a living. And what does he say to to Matthew? He says, hey, come follow me. 
Come on, let's do this. This isn't your identity. And Matthew just gets up from the tax booth and he's like, all right, let's do this. Jesus says, I'm giving you a new identity. And the story of Matthew, if I can just be personal for a second, is extraordinarily meaningful to me, so much so that my wife and I, we had our first boy a couple of years ago, and we named him Matthew in large part because of this story, because we want him to become a tax collector. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) But because the story perfectly captures what I want my kids to know about God, what I want my boys to understand about God. I desperately want them to know that they are loved by God perfectly, exactly as they are. And I want them to know that God comes to them in their lowest moments, and he doesn't come with condemnation. He says, come, follow me. That whoever might judge them for their behavior, that Jesus will always be there to see what is good in them, to call that out of them. I want them to understand the grace of God, that that, that he is always going to be there to invite them to follow no matter what. And I want to do everything I can to keep them from behavior-driven religion but I want them to see the beauty of the gospel in our Lord and Savior who comes after our hearts relentlessly. I want that truth to sink deeply into their hearts. I want that truth to sink deeply into my own heart and to your hearts as well. Let's keep going. Verse verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Now, we know this wasn't the next day because Galilee was 70 miles away from where he just was, and you just can't go that far on a donkey in a day, even in the carpool lane. So he found Philip... And said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. (laughs) you got to love Nathanael's honesty here. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth was Bethsaida's rival village. I mean, I don't know, maybe if you went to college someplace where you have a rival and you just think, man, could anything good come out of there? Or you have a rival company, man, could anything good come out of there? I mean, this is, I mean, Nathaniel's thinking, surely the Messiah is not coming from Nazareth. And Philip says to him, I love what he says. He says, come and see. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't criticize Nathaniel for holding that perspective, though perhaps he could. He doesn't get mad. He just says, come and see. And that invitation is more powerful than any argument. And I just think, man, we live in a culture that is so divided. And it's so fashionable to argue and to seek to shame those that we disagree with. And to point out their flaws and try to make them feel stupid. And I just wonder, what if we as followers of Christ were different? What if we refused to play those games and instead were just come and see people who refused to shame our adversaries but just invited them to come and see? What if we just loved people regardless of how they treated us in return? I think that would be powerful. Because here's the deal, I've been in church world a long time and I've I've gotten to hear a lot of amazing testimonies of faith and how God has saved people and the circumstances that God used. But here's the testimony I have yet to hear. Man, I was, I was far from God, but then a Christian just told me what an idiot I was for not believing in God, and, and, then, and then they insulted my political views, and then, you know, they just really t- just showed me how I am a complete moron for having the worldview that I hold, hold, and I just thought, man, I want what they have. Man, I need Jesus. Like, I've just never heard that story. If that's your story, come talk to me afterwards, I've got some questions for you. I just don't think that story exists. 
Verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. A very nice thing to say about someone who's just insulted your hometown. But, but Nathanael would have instantly recognized as an observant Jew, Jesus is referencing a, a passage of scripture, Psalm 32.2, that says this, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Jesus is saying, you're the sort of guy this verse is talking about. I can see into your heart, and I can see that, that you're the real deal. You are an authentic guy who wants the things of God. And Nathanael, excuse me, understandably, is a little bit suspicious. Verse 48, he just says, how do you know me? Thanks for the compliment, but we've never met. And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, culturally, there's a lot I could say about this, but, but, but what we need to just see is that, that fig trees were places where people would go for prayer and meditation. And what Jesus is saying is, when you were doing that, I saw you. And clearly, Jesus didn't just see him, but he saw into his heart, because hearing Jesus say this caused something to click for Nathaniel. And he says this, uh, verse 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet. Verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. And that might just sound like it's Jesus kind of saying something cryptic and difficult to understand. He sort of had a habit of doing that. But for Nathaniel, he would know exactly what Jesus is talking about. As an observant Jew who knew the scriptures, that language would be very familiar. Because see, back in Genesis 28, there's a story about a guy named Jacob. It's a very famous story. And what happens is Jacob has a dream. And in that dream, he sees a ladder connecting heaven and earth. And Genesis chapter 28, verse 12 says that there were angels ascending and descending on this ladder, that the ladder was serving as a connection point between heaven and earth. And what Jesus is telling Nathaniel is he's saying, I am the new connection point between heaven and earth. Sin has separated heaven and earth, but forget about the ladder. Now I, Jesus, the son of God, am the new connection point. And Nathaniel hears this and he's just like, man, I am all in. So what happens at this point in the story is there's a little bit of a transition. Jesus is leaving his hometown of Nazareth and is going to have a new home base in Capernaum. And I just want to read a couple verses out of Matthew chapter 4 that serve as a transition point, And then we'll, we'll get into a couple more texts here. It says this, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. This is Matthew 4 verse 13. Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what is spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9. And again, moving his home base. He's moving out of his mom's house and he's striking it out on his own. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The same message that was on the lips of John the Baptist is now on the lips of Jesus. Repent. Change your mind, literally, is what that word means. The kingdom of God is at hand. God is doing something new. 
And now we're going to move on to, to a combi- combined account of, of the call of Andrew and Peter, who we already met, and then James and John. The exact order of events here is a little bit tricky, and we don't have time to get into all of it. So we're just going to, going to read this. If you want to follow along in your Bible, we're mostly going to be in Luke chapter 5, but we'll also have the scriptures up on the screen here. And here's what happens. It's a great story. While walking alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. They'd already met Jesus, we saw that. But they had, for a time, returned to their job as fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And going on from there, a little farther, he saw two other brothers, James, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. On one occasion, likely later on in that same day, While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, such another name for the Sea of Galilee, same place. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put it out a little from the land. Sound travels much better over water than over land, and Jesus had a lot of people to preach to, so he says, hey, let's go out in the water a little bit. That'll provide some amplification. And he sat down. And taught people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out in the deep and let your nets, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. I'll be honest. I can empathize with Simon Peter a little bit here. First of all, he's a fisherman. That's his whole job. This is not a man with lots of different skills, but if there's one thing this guy knows how to do, it is catch fish. His daddy was a fisherman before him. His granddaddy was a fisherman before him. His great-granddaddy was a fisherman before him. This cat knows fish. And to make matters worse, he's been fishing all night, and he's caught nothing. He and his boys were exhausted, and everybody in that region knows you don't go fishing in the Sea of Galilee during the day. The fish swim down really deep. You can't catch them. It doesn't work. It's an exercise in futility. (laughs) And here comes Jesus, not a fisherman. I want to emphasize this. He's not a fisherman. He was a carpenter, and his daddy was a carpenter, and on and on we could go. And he comes to Simon and he says, hey, Simon Peter, listen, I I know that you just finished fishing and all that and and you just cleaned off your nets and you and your boys are exhausted, but I got a great idea. Just, Just hear me out. Let's go fishing. And Simon is like, um, no offense, Jesus, but, uh, you're a carpenter. If I need some shelves, you're my guy, but I got this fishing thing figured out, right? Like this is not going to work, but I mean, and I, and I, just, I love this. I love that statement from Simon Peter because it's one of many insights into the disciples that show them that they're not these like spiritual superheroes, right? They're, they're men with doubts and, and struggles just like us. And yet he says, but at your word, I will let down my nets. He obeys even though it doesn't make much sense. And that, by the way, will happen to you if you're serious about following Jesus. It'll cause you to behave in ways that seemingly don't make a whole lot of sense. You're going to give away how much of your income? Wait, what? You're, you're going to burn a week of vacation to go where? With high schoolers? You know? Or, or wait, you're forgiving them after what they've done to you? Wait, what? What is the matter with you? There are times when obedience to Jesus will seem very strange in the eyes of the world, and indeed maybe even in our own eyes. But Simon says, you know what? 
I'll, I'll do what you say. And it's a beautiful picture of discipleship, choosing the path of obedience, even though we don't fully understand. Let's keep reading. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. There's so many fish that their boat began to sink. And I don't know what you think when you think fishing boat, but these boats were huge. We're talking like 25, 26 feet long. So we're talking a lot of fish. And understand, Simon Peter was not a recreational fisherman like maybe some of us. This was his job. All right, so he saw fish as little swimming dollar signs, okay? This is how he put food on the table. So he just hit the jackpot. He's thinking, all right, I'm upgrading to the luxury donkey and we're moving into the gated community. I have hit it big, all right? (laughs) But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So they were with, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. When we're in the presence of holiness, our sinfulness becomes very apparent to us. This display of the power of God right in front of him made Peter all of a sudden feel very frail. And Jesus says to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. You know what? You're going to use the skills you have as a fisherman for a greater cause. You're going to catch men. Fishermen catch fish and kill them and sell them in the marketplace. I'm going to send you to men who are men and women who are spiritually dead and give you a message that will catapult them to life and freedom. And when they had brought their boats to land, immediately they left their nets and everything and followed him, including James and John, who left their boats and their father with the hired servants and followed him. How could they leave all of those fish? Am I the only one who sees that in the story? I mean, this is, they're leaving it all on the table. It's like, man, the stock of your company just went through the roof and you're saying, you know what? Nah, you can keep them. Didn't want the luxury donkey anyway. We're going to go with the rabbi. It's like, what? What, on, what is going on here? I'm glad you asked. This is so cool. First century Jewish culture. Education was huge. The Jewish historian Josephus said, we pride ourselves above all else on the education of our children. Any Jewish boy like the men in this story from the age of six would have begun learning Torah, the first five books of the law. They would study it and study it and study it. And by age 10, they would have the entire thing, the first five books of your Bible memorized. It's amazing what humans can accomplish when we don't have smartphones. And at that point, pretty much all of them would be sent back to their families to learn their trade. They'd be told, you clearly love God and love Torah, but we don't think you have what it takes to continue on in your education. Go learn your family trade. The best of the best of the best would continue. They'd keep studying the rest of the Old Testament. By age 14, they'd probably have the entire, not probably, they would have the entire Old Testament memorized. And at that point, most of them would be told, you clearly love God and love his word, but you don't have what it takes to continue in your education to become a rabbi. Go back and learn the family business. And after that, the very best of the best would find a rabbi. And they would ask that rabbi, can I be your disciple? Can I follow you? And rabbis in that day were constantly looking for the very best and the brightest to carry out their message, to continue their teaching. They only took the absolute best. 
So rabbis would just grill these teenagers ruthlessly to determine their their aptitude and their intellect and their understanding of the scriptures. And nearly all of them would be rejected. But for the ones who were the very best, a rabbi would say, come follow me. You can be my disciple and one day become a rabbi. Now listen, I don't know what the fantasy career was for you when you were growing up. I mean, maybe you grew up in the 60s during the race to the moon and like astronaut was like, oh, that was it. Like the best thing you could ever imagine being was an astronaut. Like I grew up a really big sports fan and my my plan was to play in the NBA until I realized I was going to be 5'11 and not very athletic. But I don't know, maybe movie star, rock star, whatever your fantasy career was, every single Jewish boy in this culture had the same dream and it was to become a rabbi. And nearly all of them did not get to live out that dream. Nearly all of them had to be told, you know what? You're just not quite good enough. So let's go back to the story. Why are Peter and Andrew and James and John fishermen? Because they didn't make the cut. At some point, they had been told, you don't have what it takes to be a disciple. You don't have what it takes to follow a rabbi. And here's Jesus, this famous rabbi, and he comes to them and he says, come follow me. Hey, NASA's on the phone. They've got an extra seat on the next moon mission. You want to come? It's like your plans for today are canceled at that point. They're like, forget the fish. The rabbi thinks I'm good enough. This is a dream come true. This is a dream that they had long since given up on. Man, that's just not for me. And Jesus comes and says, yes, it is. And I love that when Jesus went looking for disciples, he didn't go seek the best and the brightest. He went to the lake. He went to the tax booth. He found ordinary teenagers. And all he did was change the world. He found people that the religious system had given up on and he breathed new life into them. And let me tell you something, church. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, does the same thing today. We talk a lot about having faith in Jesus as well we should, because that really is the foundation for everything, is placing our faith in Jesus. But I want you to hear me today when I say this. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what baggage you walked in here today. Listen to me when I say this, that Jesus has faith in you. Jesus believes in you. Let that truth sink deeply into your heart. It's the truth that changed lives back then, and it's the truth that changes lives today if we would only believe it. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to respond to that call. So Jesus finishes gathering his disciples. And we have one more text to look at. We're going to look at it really quick. It's the very first public miracle or public sign that he did. It's in John Chapter 2, listen to what happens. It says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, now quick pause, wedding celebrations typically lasted a week. So it was very easy to run out of wine. 
But running out of wine or failing to show hospitality was a gigantic social faux pas here. So this, this couple who's getting married literally could, could conceivably not live this down for the rest of their lives. They're going to be that couple who ran, ran out of wine at their wedding. So this is a big deal. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, before we think Jesus is being rude to his mama, woman in that culture was like ma'am in ours. He's being very respectful. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish purification, for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So he took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. This story is loaded with symbolism. If we had more time, we would get into it. There's no, there's no accident that this story comes near the beginning of John's gospel. John is making a powerful, powerful point here. Wine enjoyed appropriately is an Old Testament symbol of joy. Uh, Jesus is entering a religious culture in which the wine had run out, and he's bringing fresh wine. It had become stale and corrupt and judgmental, and he was bringing gospel freedom. Similarly, just as Jesus transforms the water into wine, Jesus is coming to transform uh, his culture and the lives of those around him. Again, religious oppression to gospel freedom, right? He's transforming death into life. And the text says that this sign manifested his glory and it was a demonstration of of the goodness and glory of God for his disciples to see. And it says that the disciples believed him. They believed him. This was an initial act of faith on their part. We're going to see as we continue to study the scriptures that throughout their time following Jesus, their faith is going to ebb and flow. Even though they're right with him, there are going to be times when faith is difficult. There are going to be times when they don't understand. I mean, really, these guys are just like us. There are times when they'll be so dialed in with what Jesus is doing, and there'll be other times when they just don't have a clue. But here's what they knew in that moment at that wedding and what they continued to know for the rest of their time with them. They knew that there was something special about this Jesus. So when they called, they followed. And the really beautiful thing is that Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, continues to call today. And he continues to involve ordinary people like you and like me in his mission in the world. That's a beautiful, amazing thing. Would you bow your heads with me? I just want you to be able to focus on yourself and God. And I just want to ask you a couple questions as we close. First is this. Where is Jesus calling you? Some of us know exactly where he's calling us. Some of us, we're going to have to think about that and pray about that. We're not really sure. Some of us know, but we're afraid. We're afraid of what it might cost. We're afraid of what it might mean. We're afraid of what we'd have to give up. And and I just want to encourage you, if that's you this morning, 
that following Jesus indeed might be difficult, that following Jesus indeed might cost you something, that it is indeed possible that you might step out in faith and you might fail. But there is nobody who is more concerned with your ultimate joy than God is. There's nobody who loves you like he does. And while it might be difficult, I can promise you this, there'll never be a moment where you look back and say, man, that wasn't worth it. I sure wish I hadn't followed Christ where he called. Second, we've all heard the phrase, get out of your comfort zone. And that's a good thing to do, to get out of our comfort zone, to serve Jesus. But I want to ask you, just as Jesus said, hey, fishermen, I want you to use the skills you have as a fisherman for the kingdom of God. Where is Jesus calling you in your comfort zone? I mean, for some of us, Jesus is going to call us all around the world on crazy adventures for him. And indeed, engaging with God's work around the world in a cross-cultural sense is a good thing for all of us to do at least once. But for most of us, God is going to call us to our offices and to our families and to our schools and to our playgroups, to our recreational sports teams, to the parent-teacher club, to the places within our comfort zone. What is Jesus calling you to do in the places where you are most comfortable? And finally, do you believe in the deepest places of your heart that Jesus has faith in you? Because he does. Let me close in prayer and we'll end our service with a short video from Pastor Jason. God in heaven, thank you that you have faith in us. God, that we are broken that we are so intimately aware of our sinfulness. We're intimately aware of the ways that we fall short. God, and yet you look on us with kindness and love and forgiveness and compassion. That you are not interested in condemning us for our past, but rather you are interested in, in walking with us into a new future. God, thank you that when you called your original disciples, you called people like us. People with struggles and flaws and issues so that we can relate to them. God, these aren't spiritual superheroes. They're ordinary people. So I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters today that, God, we might be sensitive to your voice. That, God, and when you call, that we might respond in faith. That, God, we might live lives that that reflect this reality that you, Jesus, have faith in us. And may we do this not for ourselves, but for your glory, God. May our lives be a living testament to your goodness. And may we, like John the Baptist, be only concerned with pointing people to you because in you there is life, in you there is forgiveness and sin, in you there is hope. And it's in the strong, powerful, risen, forgiving name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.